0: Welcome to the Fluid Fan Podcast. Once again, I am your host, Angela Ruggiero, four-time Olympian in ice hockey. Now I'm the CEO and co-founder of Sports Innovation Lab. I love what we do. My mission used to be: you know, play sports, represent your country, win an Olympic gold medal. Now my mission and our company's mission is to empower the sports industry to create breakthrough fan experiences through technology. We use our software, our analysts, our team, our our research at the end of the day to inspire and lead brands towards capturing the fluid fan. And why I care so much, people say, I didn't know you liked tech, Angela. So you know what? Tech is the means to a greater good. Tech is the means to change the business of sports. It's the means that necessary to evolve our survival as an industry to, to ensure that we change the way that we capture the next generation fans attention that we capitalize on who they are, obviously grow our businesses, and at the end of the day, have that that reach and impact that sports has on the world. So tech is the means to this greater good of ensuring this next generation fan, this fluid fan, has access to sport, can be inspired by sport, can pick up some shoes, cleats, skates, and sign up. We got to, you know, you got to see it to be it. You got to have access, whether that's OTT or digital or social. You got. We have to evolve our businesses, and the Fluid Fan is all about that evolution. So someone that gets that is my guest today, Brett Gosper, the CEO of World Rugby. He's in charge of global sport at the international stage. So World Rugby is the international federation for rugby. It oversees things like the World Cup. It has to oversee all the international rugby federations and unions and plays a very, very important stakeholder role in in bringing that all together. So Brett Gosper has a big role as CEO. Today on the show, we're going to discuss the world of rugby, some of the innovative initiatives that World Rugby in particular implemented this past summer at the World Cup in Japan. He'll walk us through his background in marketing and advertising and really how that's allowed him to have a different kind of lens as he has evolved world rugby over the years under his leadership. And just dive into particular areas you may not know about world rugby. Again, a lot of our listeners may love rugby. I love it. It's uh, I just joined the board actually a few months ago. It's fast. There's great character building. You know, that's really, I think we'll get into culture of rugby. It's very different, but at the same time, it's super fast paced and athletic. I never played, but I certainly love to watch. I love watching it this summer. I'm looking forward to the Women's World Cup next summer in New Zealand. But without further ado, Brett Gosper, CEO of World Rugby. Welcome to the Food Fan Podcast. Very, very excited to have someone that is leading the way in global sport. Brett Gosper, the CEO of World Rugby. On today, Brett, thanks for taking the time. I'm really excited to dive into your background, to rugby in general, and what you're seeing globally in terms of evolution of a really fun and dynamic sport that you personally have had obviously tons of experience with, but I'm now learning very quickly to appreciate and love. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Well, it's great. I'm excited to be here and have the have the chat with you, Angela. So, uh, looking forward to covering a few topics with you.
0: You come with not only a great education but also playing experience. So, you know, a lot of the the leaders that we have on the show are phenomenal business people, but you've actually played rugby professionally you've traveled around the globe so walk me through your professional experience i I, as obviously as a former professional ice hockey player now working in the business of sport you know you you're always you always have that athlete cap on um and can 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 take that to what you're doing now
1: what i guess is interesting and different about rugby is that it turned professional officially very late in the day it's one of the youngest professional sports or, you know, major professional sports, if you'd call it that. It really only turned officially professional. We know what I, And we know what I mean by that, I, I think. In 1996, after the 95 South African Mandela-related Rugby World Cup. So I was playing before that era, but you were what you would call in France semi-professional. In other words, you were, you were paid reasonable sums of money to play the sport. So I began playing in Australia. In Australia, amateur meant you actually paid subscription fees to, to to play you're playing top level club rugby, state rugby, representative rugby. I was what was a junior international played trials for the national team on a couple of occasions left Australia because I got recruited by a French club when I was about twenty one and my intention was to go for one season to come back have another uh, chance to get into the Australian side so what was meant to be six months turned into 10 seasons.
0: You got named captain the following year, if I'm not mistaken. So it might, was that one of the reasons they said, Hey, you're a great leader. You got to stay here for another decade.
1: <laughs> well, that was it, you know, and it, you, I'm not sure why that was, but it, it did give you very, uh, a lot of responsibility, at a very early age. Yeah. And, and um, I remember, you know, someone threw me the keys to the team as I put it and it was like, what do I say? What do I do? And it was a pretty early life lesson on, you know, everyone's looking to you to say the right things, do the right things, play the right way. And it, it was, uh, it, I, some, some people didn't like that added responsibility. I quite enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I stayed. And that's, probably, that's probably how they got me to stay on for another 10 years, which was mm-hmm. six months. And, you know, that was, uh, what was interesting was that in those days, I had to be at training every night at 7 p.m. till about 10 p.m. So every day of the week I had a training session. My evenings were filled with training sessions and the weekends we'd travel and play all over France, I Either fly down to the South where most of the rugby was or train somewhere you know, on, a, on a train. But I lived a dual life. I was working as a trainee. I'd completed uh, my university degree in Australia in economics. I was actually doing a law and economics degree and deferred my final year to do that six months in France and never went back to complete, Unfortunately to my parents' chagrin, my final year of five in law, but I got my economics degree. And um, I was an intern at Ogilvy, which is a major, still a a major global uh, marketing services advertising uh, group. Uh, um, And I was able to actually rock up to Ogilvy, who I'd started doing that with in Australia as a trainee, Mm -hmm. and um, say, look, if you, I'm being paid by rugby, so you don't have to pay me, but if I, work for you for six months and you like me, you can keep me.
0: <laughs> what I love about that though, and we, we talk a lot about obviously sport as this amazing platform for education, for learning about teamwork, leadership, goal setting, et cetera. I mean, that's why I love, again, advocate for athletes to, to go into business and, and for people in general to play sports. They learn all those life skills. But you, on the other hand, said, I'm learning lessons on the field of play i'm you know receiving best club player honors so you 're captain you 're doing well on the field, and now you 're saying, "Hey, I want to get experience not just with my degree but with Ogilvy and start building up my um, my right. professional experience
1: and that 's much that is much harder these days you know, yep. for rugby players for professional sports in any area
0: they become such specialists so let 's move on you 've got this killer sporting background you're, you join Ogilvy and then you spend most of your professional life prior to Becoming CEO of World Rugby, really in the marketing agency services that you're bringing now into World Rugby, which obviously got rebranded. But walk me through before we dive into like your role there, the similarities and differences when it comes to marketing a sports entity like World Rugby versus a you know big global brand like Sprint, Nextel, or or one of the the bigger brands that you've uh, you been supporting.
1: Yeah, there. I mean, look, there are lots of, uh, of similarities, and I turned up in the sports environment, I discovered that I didn't know as much as I thought I did, but I went about it like I would if I'd just won a new piece of business with, with the agency and tried to ask all the right questions and almost act as my own consultant to, to get myself up to speed and, and analyze things and so on. And actually one of the first things I recommended was that we did position, it was all about brand work to me and making the brand as simple to access and as, and as attractive as possible and my biggest barrier was it was called the IRB, and so many sports organisations are called by initials.
0: Oh, I, when I joined the IOC, I'm going. There's so many acronyms. Can someone <laughs> just give me a book for what I? How do I talk? This is like a completely foreign language. So I hear well, you. It's... That's it. And you're
1: in the sports business, you should know yeah. what they all stand for. And some <laughs> of the older ones you do. You know that the IAAF is. It's now changed to World Athletics, but you you, you kind of know some of them. But yeah. if you're in the tent, you you should know. But if you're mm-hmm. on a conquest strategy and you're trying to globalize and recruit new fans and audiences, then you've got to be named something that they will know who the person is that's sending out messages and talking about certain aspects. Yep. And the IRB didn't cut it in that basis. Mm-hmm.
0: So that was one of the first things you did. That was the first uh, thing
1: I did. But it was also at the same time as you change a brand name, you've got to define what the brand stands for like any yep. brand and you want to you want to make that change at the same time. Our brand stands for this. and This is why we're changing mm-hmm. our brand. And we felt the big differentiator with rugby versus other sports at a, at a professional level. And probably we you know, we are a challenger professional sport. And in most markets, we're challenging professional football. That is soccer in your land, in, in American parlance. Um, but in the States, it would be a challenger, probably it's not quite a challenger brand, even a brand in, in the States yet.
0: Um, and maybe in the future. You know, we're working we on
1: that. that right. The aspiration is the <laughs> challenger brand in the states, but in most places where we're a player, we're a challenger brand, and, and, and football is generally the yeah. top sport. Yeah. So we would need to differentiate. And the differentiation for us was about the values of the sport,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there are five of those. And if you're a good communicator, you know you can't throw five tennis balls at anyone and they'll catch all of them, and they'll probably end up dropping all of them. So that messaging is a very you know you want one clear message and can you encapsulate what you mean in one clear message and we we landed on the territory of of character and you know it, it, to, to us rugby is the great builder of character and you know it tests character builds character and all of those values add up to uh, a a person that in the context of rugby learns life skills
0: it's actually one of the reasons full disclosure For our listeners, I actually recently joined the board of World Rugby, so I didn't play rugby myself. Obviously, have a background in in ice hockey and
1: sport. Let's say more graceful, (laughs) you
0: know. I yeah, I know international sport, but when approached the you know a lot of different sports, I could have supported. I think coming out of my IOC work, but rugby, to your point of character, it's like what sports you want to get behind, support, and do exactly what you're saying. It leads to the lessons that you learn. And, and if it's going to stand behind one thing, uh, I couldn't agree more. I love, I love what it, what it represents and, and the position, not just the positioning, but reflective of the actual intent of, of the sport itself. So I'm, I'm proud to be on the board now supporting it. And it's, I'm wondering, did that posi- repositioning come? Part of it is obviously rugby's in the Olympics. Now everyone can see sevens, which is completely dynamic and we'll get to it. But, we successfully got in, and that was something that you led and, and helped to sort of shepherd in for the 2016 Rio Olympics.
1: Yeah. The position was for all of rugby, and and it was to, to, you know, we know there are Olympic values out there. I mean, it's interesting. Baron Pierre de Coubertin, you may not know this, Angela, but Baron Pierre de Coubertin, and it was part of the Olympic pitch on sevens, was a top French rugby referee.
0: Hmm.
1: And I didn't know that. Referee, the very first game, which was between... The very first French championship game, which was in 1892, between my club, the racing club, against Stade Francais, both top clubs still in in French rugby, in 1892. Won fortunately by my club, uh, racing club. And he was fascinated by rugby school in England, which is the origin of the sport of rugby. Uh, A a, a young uh, boy called William Webb Ellis uh, picked a ball up uh, exactly, almost exactly 200 years ago. And ran with a soccer ball, and that's how rugby evolved from that moment. And he apparently Pierre Baron Pierre de Coubertin went to rugby school on many occasions to understand this kind of ethos around the sport of rugby. The school um, it was a uh, English private school, still is uh, founded in 1500 or something, so it's been around for a while. So that many of the Olympic, what I'm getting to, is that many of the uh, the Olympic values that Pierre de Coubertin was espousing at the time, probably, I'm not saying they were entirely came out of rugby, but there was a definite link there between what he was exploring in the rugby mm-hmm. world. And so, so the whole area of character sits very well with the Olympic movement, which obviously has very strong values as, as well. And, and again, like any brand getting back to the subject of how, you know, the difference between a sports uh, brand and a, and, a, and a major global product brand in a conventional sense, is you need an emotional difference. It's all very well to have the physical aspect. Everyone can see that rugby is different from football. But you need an emotional differentiator to really capture the hearts of prospective fans. Of course, they'll fall in love with the physical aspects of it, what they see on television, how it's presented and so on. But to have that extra magical dimension an emotional dimension around the values is, is important for any brand.
0: You're totally right. And this is something spending eight years on the IOC. This is called the Fluid Fan Podcast. It's about tech, it's forward thinking, it's innovation, it's how do we make sport better and more engaging. But the balance of tradition is always something that we come back to, which is how do you maintain that tradition that with that brand represents, you know, character and the love of the game with, Hey, we need to evolve. We need to integrate, you know, put chips in the ball and, and allow our fans to get, you know, so let me ask you a couple of questions there. Cause I'm, I'm interested in your perspective of again, sitting on a, as the CEO of a world federation that has to balance tradition and innovation. One sevens is a much shorter format. We've seen a lot of innovation simply around the format and sevens isn't new obviously, but that was critical to getting into the games because you're able to actually fit the sport in the you know, limited time period that you have. And we're also seeing with these fluid fans, less, you know, attention span, if you will, more dynamic interest in sports that have shorter fields, three on three, we see basketball, you know, exploding, going to be a full sport this summer in Tokyo. So sevens obviously fit into that category. I got to give the medals in Rio for the women. I was blown away. I'm like, wow, this is fast. The men are freaking running like crazy, you can't look down and drink your beer or eat your popcorn. You miss it. you miss a play. The game's over. Like it's so you have to be dialed in for the sevens. I'm wondering if that's just reflect on tradition versus innovation and and sevens in particular. Is that something yeah. that I mean that sevens that you're has huge, huge
1: huge potential to capture exactly what you're talking about. That fluid fan with with a lower attention rate and you know impatience to move on to the next thing and and wants bite sized. High octane stimulation, rather than sit down for an entire day or afternoon or whatever. I mean, the paradox, I guess, with sevens is we've got a format. Each game is seven-minute halves. It moves very quickly. There's it's, there's a try a, a try which is a score, a touchdown every seventy-three seconds. Um, it has everything that these sort of fans would like. The paradox is it, it happens over two days usually. We've got, for example, in the in the World Series, is it it happens in 10 different destinations around the globe it's it's a bit like formula one racing you accumulate points as a team over the period of, the, of 10 there's a men and women's series they combine on about six of the 10 occasions which is great but it is it is a like a festival of two days of rugby with all of these all of these different things as a, as a festival it's fantastic the all, young kids it's a much younger audience than 15th rugby love to come into the stadium. It's a bit of a party atmosphere. They dip in, they dip out when their team's playing or not playing. But as a broadcast product, what we're trying to do is innovate more to reflect that short bite-sized consumption rather than just have it droning on for two days. We need to stream it and have it available to fans and and, and whether it be on pay channel or streaming, but we need to develop a much shorter, what we're calling the super session that is maybe two hours if that with breaks bite-sized version of the sevens product on broadcast because we're not as yet creating the broadcast value that we have in 15s rugby so that's one of the challenges that we have in sevens certainly that's not a challenge in the olympics because in the olympics we get naturally high broadcast uh, figures because uh, we're on free to air in many cases and the olympics itself adds obviously a layer of the stature to, to, to the event and so on. So that, that's kind of what we're working on, but you're right. It, the format of the sport is really tailor-made, although it's a hundred year old format, it is tailor-made. It's up to us to turn it into, you know, something which is, which is much more consumable for that fan. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I love it. I mean, again, it's, it's fast paced. It, it it aligns well with the, a lot of the research we're seeing. You see baseball and softball cutting innings. You see again, that's right. Sports. Hockey's, there's a whole league now, three-on-three league there. I think they're trying to test out. Is that something that different fans, maybe the newer generation?
1: We had a test event with some investors this year, actually at the same time as the Rugby World Cup 15s, at the O2, uh, which you know, holds about 20,000 people. I think there were about 17,000 on the two nights that it happened, men and women's. Five-a-side indoor rugby, smaller pitch size. I think it was an hour and 15 minutes of uh, the entire evening or, or, or so big crowds again, high octane, shorter format. Um, and it, it, it yeah, moves in, in that general direction.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. That. So, so there's format innovation. Walk us through the innovation that was utilized at the, the world cup this, uh, recently in Japan, because like amazing statistics in terms of new engagement in terms of, you know, what we actually saw from a, you know, in venue experience, but also the majority of those fans that were watching the World Cup were were watching from home. Um, And I thought it was was fascinating that of the 2.1 billion views, which is amazing for social viewing and engagement numbers, 54% came from official World Rugby channels. The rest came from these fluid fans that are producing content you know sharing it uh on facebook twitter instagram no TikTok, youtube etc yeah, et cetera. TikTok, TikTok, yeah TikTok's just like if people don't know what TikTok is please google and follow they are absolutely yeah. you don't TikTok. have a few
1: laughs on TikTok, yeah
0: they are com- i mean they're one that is at the top of our list in terms of our research but you knew that obviously months ago and implemented um you had i think 12 million TikTok impressions in the first right. three days of the tournament alone so Walk us through again the innovation that, that you pushed for and that the organization well, I think um, was, shepherded for for the work for the World Cup.
1: we I mean again, we're coming back, we we didn't really have a dedicated marketing department. We've had a communications department. And again, they tend to be messaging what you have to message and and in order to focus on actually I mean again, coming back to the difference between a because related to, to what we're saying here. There is between sports, marketing a sport and marketing a product. But the main difference is it's the difference between a fan and a consumer. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're marketing a product globally, like a coffee or a, you know, a car or whatever it is, a tyres, most of the brands that you're a reasonably low interest, even a, a brand like Apple, which people are pretty connected to. In fact, that's probably a brand that comes closest to having fans rather than consumers, let's say. But you're mostly dealing with consumers who are choosing between brands, something's gonna cause them to choose that brand other than other. It might be apathy, it might be slight preference, favor, etc. Whereas fans are highly passionate consumers that are either in love with a sport or about to fall in love with a sport or a team and so on. And therefore our role as innovators is more than engage them, is to get them to fall in love with your sport or your team rather than the consumer brand, which is to get them to prefer your your product and so on Mm -hmm. and so therefore all of your efforts are around yeah creating engagement because in the consumer area that means i'm getting some mind space they're more likely to choose me in the fan area it's really getting a very deep relationship and a real love for the sport and therefore you know spending more time and wanting to spend more time with the sport because of the enjoyment factor and so on so you know we had different innovations actually at the stadium itself for the broadcast it was the first world cup we actually did our own broadcast normally we just used the host broadcast we bought the rights for it in the host country in japan we decided we're going to actually fund our own broadcast product manage it control it and therefore be able to bring what we wanted to bring from the sport so it was a sport broadcaster not necessarily just the channel dealing with it. its mostly home audience and so on so that That was a change in mindset. It meant we had to also innovate. I think, you know, whether it be graphics, camera angles, you know, we had a new Canon product called 360 camera technology where we had, normally you've got about 30 cameras installed for a a top, you know, global soccer or rugby event. To broadcast, we had 120 cameras installed through this Canon process, which gave us, you know, 360 angles and brought the audience much closer to the action, almost like a, you know, video game technology which was really well received. We did a lot of, uh, I don't want to get too technical, but we did a lot of, you know, You spider- can get
0: as technical as you exactly. want on yeah, the spider <laughs> Spider
1: climbing, which is not new. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, all about bringing the audience in. We had cameras and teams implanted with the teams for the first time at a World Cup where a lot of the coaches are pretty sensitive about bringing, t- you know, this sort of stuff into into changing rooms before games and at training sessions and so on. Mm-hmm. But we had that for all teams and everyone agreed to that. Again, it's bringing the fans closer to the action and the backdrop of, of, of what's happening. Mm. I think all of that meant our broadcast was great. Obviously, from a social media point of view, um, we think our content was fresh and, and sharp and creative. You know, We've invested hugely in our own internal. We've brought things probably more internally in, in recent times and that is the direction of travel. But we do use agencies as well to give us some creative freshness. But mm-hmm. we had a new show called The Daily Show, which had about 11 million views, which is like a, you know, hosted on, on, online program, which, um, you know, w- was very um, innovative and charming. And what what you get at a World Cup is half of the people have never seen a rugby game before. So you've got to have a channel which is as much entertaining as it is educational and that, and that filled that
0: uh... yeah, and I think that's a big evolution though uh, again, you mentioned changing mindset, having more ownership and control, um, having to you know make an investment in partnership like Canon or new graphics this fluid fan you said half half of the audience may have never seen, but you're trying to capture them, create that passion, that love, so they come back because as you know there's we're in the attention economy and and these fans these casual fans, if you will these fluid fans have Tons of option. That is lots of other stuff to look at. Yeah, Yeah, they're they're competing with uh, you know, every other form of entertainment, not just every other sport. So it's great to hear obviously you're doing things. I'm interested again back to that tradition versus innovation. From a very traditionalist sport, you're convincing coaches to give you access. Fluid fans follow players now, not sports leagues, teams. They're they're interested in the individual in in a lot of ways. Um and the haka. I think the haka was really interesting. I read that was the number one viewed video from the World Cup. Is. I is mean, of course is. it always is, but like that's the personality. That's what these fans want to see and love and fall in love with, and then, and then that's, they watch uh, the sport.
1: <laughs> no, no haka is exactly the same. You see, uh, because it depends on how the team who's facing the hacker reacts in many ways, and, and why it was the number one view is because in the final, sorry, in the semi that actually the All Blacks lost to England, England formed a, an arrow shape, and almost surrounded the all blacks in a way that had never been seen before
0: <laughs> i was there it was interesting and,
1: and, and it was it was it was very interesting. And, and you know they the camera really zoomed in on some of the of the facial attitude that england was showing towards the all blacks and that was contrasted with the the all black you know haka, which is effectively a war dance and so on. So it was high drama and that, that's what the fans are looking for mm-hmm. they want to know more about the players um, one way of getting you cameras by the way into changing room is to tell the coaches which is true you're not lying to them they are a big part of the story and and you know the coaches these days are, are, are as big if not many ways bigger bigger mm-hmm. stars than the players themselves mm-hmm. um, because they encapsulate the attitude of that team more than anyone else so
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah we look we got some huge broadcast audiences and again you know by us absolute standards given the population of states it's, it, it may not seem to some of the viewers here but just to understand the japan scotland game which wasn't even a, a knockout game um had f- an audience of 55 million in japan alone which is half the population That's
0: I, th- insane. I think Super Bowl does about a
1: third of the u.s population
0: yeah no the- it's everyone is watching i mean so, it, it,
1: these were astounding broadcasts. Because, again, when when the Japanese do get interested in something and their team is playing, it it becomes a national obsession. That's what happened with our World Cup, fortunately. And, again,
0: that's part of innovation and change. Let's go to new markets. Let's go to the Asian market. Take that bet. Taking a little bit more ownership and control over how we bring this to the rest of the world You know, digitally, but engaging that fan in Japan, that new Asian market.
1: And, actually, the Canon technology, one of the reasons we did that is because we knew – that Canon would be looking at this sport through the eyes of the Japanese. Yeah. So yeah. having 120 cameras there was the eyes of Japan mm-hmm. presenting it in an innovative way, an engaging way for that for mm-hmm. that audience was innovative.
0: So what about the fan zones across Japan? Because part of again, when you want to capture the food fan, we're not talking about the diehard that knows all the rules that you know has the jersey and is there forever. That is a well-known entity. What we study at Sports Innovation Lab really is. All the fans are evolving, in particular, young people are engaging in new ways. And part of the goal is to teach, to learn the rules, the nuances, get to know the players. Again, to your point before fall in love with your sport, you uh, implemented these fan zones that had almost 2 million visitors across the tournament, where really you were teaching about the history of rugby and and, and extending the venue outside of the field of play. And I think that's really interesting. Because again, you can't do everything digitally. Sometimes you got to touch and feel and be a part of the atmosphere, even if you can't afford a ticket to get into the venue.
1: No, that's right. And again, these fan, these fluid fans, yes, they're 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 tech savvy. Yes, they like to see everything through a screen and so on. But they also love experiences. And the whole point about their experiences, they can then share that and show everyone, you know, whether it be on Instagram or whatever that they that they've been there, they were there, they're part of it. And a fan zone allows that without you actually being in the stadium if you're not being fortunate enough to buy and the rugby world cup was a complete sellout it sold a few fewer tickets because the stadium a bit smaller in Japan was a 1.8 million sellout for that it was a 99.5 percent fill rate on the stadium which is far higher than the olympics or even a fifa world cup would would hit out for a tournament and it was a record for us but anyway the fan zones provided that experience Allowed young fans to come in and really be part of the event, and and to learn. Yeah, you know, there were snippets and films cut on, you know, easy easy learning for the rules, and yes, to focus in on some of the players and the stars, particularly the Japanese stars, obviously who are now household names in that market.
0: Awesome. So, just want to say congrats on all the success there. Looking into the future now, you know, huge economic impact. I think the World Cup four billion new market. You've got all these opportunities, obviously the board and the president and world rugby has to make decisions on growth. So new regions, new formats, or sevens isn't a new format, but really investing in that format. You know, women, we haven't even talked about, you know, half the population, what what world rugby has been trying to do to increase participation and and viewership of, of, of that demographic of obviously women's world rugby. There's all these opportunities you could invest in just the tech to get more eyeballs, more uh, engagement. Where do you see the future of world rugby in, in say, five or or 10, maybe 10 years out? Um, And what would be something, again, as a balancing that tradition versus innovation, the biggest opportunity for growth?
1: We're still quite an infant sport geographically, I guess, is the opportunity for us. Obviously, like any sport, we're going through the uncertainties of the changing broadcast landscape. And are we going to, you know, you, 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 our new fans, let alone our existing fans, going to be as accessible as as, as they were from the free to air models of the, of yesteryear, through the pay channels, and and now heading more into you know uh, brands using or, or or sports using OTT platforms, and a mixture of all of the above. And how, how can we ensure that we hold up these audiences, but especially hold up the revenue that's created by those broadcast audiences, and so on. So. All of that is, is quite an uncertain future. and All you can do through that uncertain future is to make sure the product itself is always going to be highly demanded and marketable so that whatever the platform, you're going to be wanted.
0: <laughs> and mm-hmm.
1: we have to look after that. We have a, a very high reliance on two geographies, which is France and the United Kingdom, because that's where the main broadcast and commercial markets are. We've just created really in one world cup, a new, broadcast market now it's up to sustaining that broadcast market which is japan which is fortunately a very large broadcast market so geographies such as the united states hugely important um in in the future because obviously it's the biggest commercial market but that also means it's the most competitive so it's not just an easy one to turn up and succeed in indeed the same you'd say for china for different reasons a difficult market although very tempting for its size as is india and so on so Growing our broadcast footprint is, is very important. The Olympics is a, is a very important part of that growth strategy. What we've seen, and we do a lot more research now, we didn't do any research before I turned up, we do Nielsen research across the globe now to understand perceptions. You know, It's almost like a, a UNA, a usage and attitude test that you do on any brand to work out in which markets, what are the attitudes, what are the barriers, and so on. And we know that it's actually Sevens that's growing the brand outside of the traditional markets, and that's where all the growth's coming from. So, Sevens has a huge role, and the Olympic connection giving us that visibility and legitimacy in educational areas uh, and legitimacy with conversations of expansion with governments in certain markets and so on is hugely important. So, geographic expansion, coming back to the technology theme, exploring an aggregation of rugby itself, not just with our own products of world rugby. World rugby is a very fragmented sport. There are all sorts of competitions that maybe your listeners won't know of, but there's the Six Nations, which is basically the European contest. There's club competitions in the Southern Hemisphere. There's club competitions in different parts of the world. There are international competitions in the North and South that we don't own the rights to, but that we will increasingly, with partners, create an aggregation because ultimately it's actually not World Rugby, the brand that we're most interested in. It's Brand Rugby. And if we can aggregate some of that and have enough content, then we will have a viable OTT platform that may make some money in some instances, but our real drive as a developer of the sport is to turn the lights on in those dark markets that don't have access to rugby. And that's one of our major barriers to growth as a sport is actual visibility of the sport. Even if we, in some markets say we're going to make rugby world cup available to you for Mm -hmm. free, which we do, in many markets because we want that visibility for growth um the broadcaster will often say well we just don't have the interest in the sport yet it's a chicken and egg thing we don't have the interest in the sport so we're not going to run that sport so you know an ott platform that are, enables us to drive some interest in those markets where a broadcaster is not going to use is very important for us in the near future mm-hmm. so continuing to grow obviously you know our our uh, our promotional aspect on social media, our broadcast aspect on OTT, um, continue to, to drive into new geographies where there is a broadcast market. We're not, we, we, what's different with rugby is that we've always in the past had a participation strategy. It's all been about getting more players, which is always important for a federation and its member federations. But increasingly we know it's in order to create dollars, to create, more promotional money to get those participants, the wide end of the funnel is the audience. And so, you know, to engage those fans where we're, we're learning lessons from almost pure fan sports, where participation is not their preoccupation. I'm thinking of things like Formula One and things like that, where it really is about just driving audience. If we drive audience, it's a means to an end for money, but also to, to actually recruit statistically more participants,
0: Huge opportunity. Obviously, you got to consider everything. You can't pick one. So I heard that loud and clear. I'm excited to be a part of the journey. Definitely will be in New Zealand next year for the Women's World, the Women's World Cup. Uh, yeah. I mean, New Zealand, first of all, beautiful country, but got to cheer on the ladies and another, obviously, opportunity for growth, given the changing nature of sports and, and how, you know, even a, a tough sport like like rugby... And women's hockey, there's a, a growing fan base and a growing uh, demographic that wants access to that. So thanks for giving us your view into rugby. I'm turning it over now. We've got this segment that we always do at the end, four questions with number four. You know, that was my jersey back in the day. We talk about innovation. So first question, Brett, CEO of World Rugby, what does innovation mean to you?
1: We used to have these debates in the ad industry all the time. You know, what's the difference between innovation and creativity or being creative and innovative and i and i I still believe innovation is a means to an end creativity almost was an end in itself except in the ad business because you're selling a product and so on but innovation is doing things in different ways to get to a better outcome and exploring different ways of doing things to get to a better outcome so It it was a means to an end. And I think if you're innovating, you're exploring all of the time. And technology obviously fulfills that in many ways. New Mm -hmm. new technology is an easy way to explain it. But even in the way you structure your business, in the way you, you engage fans, in the way you structure your own product or tournaments and so on doing things differently is innovation and, and, and it's an important but look, it's the, it's the, it's the oxygen of any company these days is it, it really is about how fast you learn in this environment to create ways of engaging, whether it be your consumer base or, or, or your fan audience. So yeah. it's vital and people could view, I think it's not just technology is the point I was going to make. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, it's probably a very tangible way innovation comes through technology in so many areas and technology has created new environments and disrupted new markets but it's not don't leave it up to technology it's the way you approach many things it might even be a an innovative attitude you might have in the way you go about something
0: yeah what about the most innovative person that you respect look up to if they were going to speak somewhere you, you would just I, you know could, you'd actually pay attention
1: <laughs> Like you know, in, in our industry, I, I can't think of. I can think of a line that Richard Scudamore, who's the who was the Premier League uh, CEO for a while, a hugely successful league financially, you know, one of the great world products in sport and so on. And I just remember an interview he did once, and they said, you know, why why is. <laughs> I don't know if this is innovative, but just to me, it was a great insight. And it was like, why are you so successful? What is it about the Premier League? And he just said, it's unscripted drama. I just thought those words really defined what sport is about. Yeah,
0: I, I think it's, sport is the original reality series so and it, well,
1: it is, it is. And, it, and it and
0: suddenly suddenly everyone has a reality show but it's been around for a while
1: <laughs> that's right <laughs> exactly
0: what about an innovative company i'd love it if it was a sports tech company obviously yeah but there's a few of those i mean it's fairly broad but we, we, we hawkeye, pay attention
1: to. i think hawkeye is a very good company they're doing a lot of we use hawkeye a lot of technology in the area of concussion identification
0: mm-hmm.
1: video technology uh on the on the field is you know the work that they do is is amazing, and you know, it's, it's very important to us to, to, to the whole area of player welfare. so they kind of use a, a synchronized multi angle replay technology which is astounding, and it's yeah saving lives I'm not sure I go that far, but it's certainly protecting players and, and and looking after the game and providing some incredible action replays in what we do. I think Apple is, you know, it's funny how many categories they have recreated. And again, I, I, uh, I work for the agency that had Apple. And we actually had Steve Jobs come and talk to our board on one occasion, which was, which was quite impressive, uh, to, to say the least. But Apple, you know, their wearable technology, I think, is, is fantastic, certainly for recreational sport. It's fabulous. Um, one of our, actually, one of our, um, I've mentioned one of our sponsors, Capgemini. Which is a you know traditional IT consulting firm, very innovative company, and in fact the category that they occupy in our Sevens sponsorship is called the innovation category, and they're doing some great gamification stuff in Sevens with us. The match predictor, which you can find on our app, on the on the world on the HSBC World Rugby Sevens Series, they do some great work around and great data work for us too, and data graphics and, and just mining player statistics, in a, in a, in a, in a very fresh way for fans.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Player welfare is a big one and we call it the quantified athlete sector and tons of data collectors, analyzers, forecasters trying to help keep players safe, keep human performance. You know, Apple is a great example. There's so much out there that obviously the sporting community is using now to help That's their right. athletes, but is extending into these uh, wider markets in particular. All right, last one. You can't say rugby, but innovative league, team, federation, someone, again, you, you look towards and say they're, they're yeah. doing things differently, uh, you know, got to pay attention.
1: Yeah, I think, look, I think I come back to uh, Formula One because they're a pure audience aggregator. They're not trying to, obviously, they need some sort of pipeline for drivers, but they're not trying to engage half the population in getting into cars and driving Formula One cars they are, you know, trying to build an audience all of the time. And that focus on that is always interesting to watch. And I think, you know, some of the stuff they've done recently, they've got a a product called fan voice, which is almost like a, it's a feedback mechanism for their fans to shape all aspects of what they're doing. And I think all sports could learn from that. It's called fan voice. And it's, it's, it's a combination of, of survey. It's it's a well-disguised survey and research actually.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's
1: something that the fans interact with and can really have their say and shape uh, the way they, you know, view the sport, consume the sport, connect with it. And I think that's fantastic. I know the Bundesliga and, and Vodafone have done some interesting things in AR, in, you know, augmented reality. There's a partnership there that I've seen some amazing work on that. But, but they'd be the, probably the two the, the two come to mind, really.
0: Two good ones. Brett Gosper, CEO of World Rugby. Thanks for your time today, just giving us your insights in uh, in the sport and your, obviously, extensive marketing and agency background and how that relates to sport. Super, super fascinating perspective and, and just where the sport is headed. So thanks for your time today and and good luck in
1: prepping so for the next World Cup. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's always, it's, it's having, you never, you rarely actually get to talk in a, in a, in a dialogue for so long it's a little bit therapeutic as well i'd say
0: there you you go well we're always here for you sports innovation lab we we love talking to people and organizations that are doing great stuff with sport you know sport is that platform we always say that can change the world and uh and world rugby certainly is doing that and you're playing a major role there so thanks for thank you so much taking your time the
1: role you're playing thank you very much indeed.
0: Thanks again to Brett Gosper, the CEO of World Rugby, for joining me on the podcast. Fantastic perspective on this international sport, how it's thriving in different parts of the world. I enjoyed my time in Japan this summer at the World Cup. Thanks for having me and for what you do to help world rugby grow. It's been a pleasure to serve, and I look forward to continuing to serve on the World Rugby Executive Committee. This sport is fun, fast-paced great culture, great character builder. I don't know if I'll ever play. I would love to. Getting older though, I don't want, I don't know if I want to risk more injuries, but maybe I'll lay some up if I can learn all the rules. (laughs) Thanks again though, to my producer, Jack Barlow, as well as my entire team at Sports Innovation Lab for everything that you do for the industry. If you've only heard this one show, listen to more. If you can't live without it, subscribe, iTunes, SoundCloud, just look up fluid fan podcast. We have an array of guests. We really try to think about who are the leaders on the sports side? Who are the leaders on the tech side? Who are innovative thinkers? Who are people that sit even outside of sports that can lend light on this new generation of consumer, this next generation fan, the fluid fan. So if you have ideas, let us know. We're always looking for feedback. If you want to dive deeper into the research in particular, Our latest report, The Fluid Fan, is here. It's really our Fluid Fan 2.0. Look up that report on our website, www.sportsilab.com. I love my listeners. Thanks for being here. I'm your host again, Angela Ruggiero. Have a wonderful day.